The cancer journey is unique for everyone. It's time to figure out our new normal, and there's no one-size-fits-all manual. Welcome to Unspoken Cancer Truths with Jen Cochran, because surviving is just the beginning. Welcome to episode 61 of Unspoken Cancer Truths. I'm your host, Jen Cochran. The idea for this podcast started in the summer of 2018. And my guest today was one of the first people that I actually reached out to about being a guest. And that was probably a month or so before she found out. And then I found out that she was going to be one of Stand Up to Cancer's 10 Years, 10 Stories in the fall of 2018. And then she and I recorded our Cancer Cliff Notes episode in the spring of 2019. So it's been a two years since we've really like chatted face to face because we're we're on zoom here she's a 37 year cancer survivor diagnosed with hodgkin's lymphoma in high school she was then diagnosed with palate cancer 30 years later and shortly thereafter metastatic lung cancer she is living on the cutting edge of science with her treatments, and I'm so happy to have her back today to catch up with us on how she's doing and what new and exciting things have popped up over the last two years. Welcome back, Kelly Lennon. Thank you very much, Jen. It's great to be back. I can't believe it's been two years. It's crazy. It is so crazy, and we do text now and again and and kind of catch up and follow what's going on with one another. and. You, I would love for you to um, just kind of give for people who haven't listened to our previous episode, which was episode four, um, if people want to listen back. But I would love for you to just kind of give people an overview of, of your cancer journey to date and then up to when we talked last time and then kind of get me caught up on, on what's been going on over the last couple of years because it's been quite an adventure. It, it, it certainly has. Um, well, I was diagnosed in 1984 when I was 17 in high school um, with Hodgkin's lymphoma. And I had radiation therapy from really basically my mandible to my pelvis uh, over three months. And then um, had follow up every three months, six months, every year, up until the 10 year point in 1994 where they kind of let me go. And I did really well. Everything, you know, the cancer disappeared, everything um, worked out really well. But I remember at my last follow-up appointment, my um, radiation oncologist telling me that now um, the focus shifts from looking for recurrence to looking for secondary um, effects of radiation therapy. So he told me, you know, don't ever smoke, which wasn't an issue. Um, wear sunscreen and get mammograms starting at 30. And at that point, I was 27. So um, things were sort of quiet for a while. And then in 2014, 10 days from my 30th anniversary of that first diagnosis, I was sitting in a dentist appointment and um, having the oral cancer screening that they do, that hygienist was doing. And uh, she asked me about a bump in the back of my mouth, on my top roof of my mouth, my palate. And um, I didn't know there was a bump in the back of my mouth. So she brought the dentist in and they decided to um, that I needed a follow-up. Um, so it turned out uh, to be, I was eventually diagnosed with a, a palate cancer in a minor salivary gland. And I was at Mass Eye and Ear for, the, for um, a palate surgery. and. Things went well with that. And afterwards, they were debating whether to do radiation therapy, to be sure. And during that time, I had a couple of scans at Mass General, kind of due diligence to see, you know, did it spread and we weren't able to determine it or should we be doing radiation? And they found lung cancer, um, which was quite a shock. And I had a lobectomy, chemotherapy combined with radiation therapy, which I didn't know they did at the time. And um, at my first follow-up appointment, it turned out that um, it had metastasized and was then in both lungs. 
And so they put me on a different drug and it became a situation where, you know, we weren't talking about cure anymore. We were talking about prolonging my life because it was a very aggressive type of cancer, a non-small cell lung carcinoma. And then they put me on a different drug and that didn't work either. And things were looking pretty bad as it continued to spread from my lungs and into my brain. And um, I was put on immunotherapy, Opdivo, in June of 2015. Um, and at that point, I had advanced cancer, induced anorexia and cachexia. And I was on three different pain meds all day you know, to get through the day, because I had a lot of tumor pain. And, you know, within two months, from June to August, I had treatments every two weeks. And by August, we found out that it was well. And it was against some pretty big odds. And it continued to work. And I had treatments for two years, from June 2015 to June 2017. And things uh, were stable, looked great. I started feeling great. I'm certainly not suffering from anorexia or cachexia anymore. <laughs> and um, they took me off treatments. And I have been stable since, which That's is amazing. Unbelievable. Um, I think the, you know, when I looked up stats, I don't tend to live by stats, but I kind of like to look at them and sort of get a little bit of a reality check. And I think I had a 5% chance of surviving four years after treatment with um, immunotherapy. And that was 2019. So that's not bad. <laughs> that's amazing. I think in the land of being a cancer survivor, right? Like there were things I didn't know about my type of breast cancer when I was first diagnosed. And I kind of felt like at the time, like, okay, it's early stage, we've got this. And then as I learned, like how aggressive HER2 positive can be and how what the results were like prior to her septum being an immunotherapy that is being used to treat it like that immunotherapy has really changed the survivorship. And I think if we had known those things before, I don't think it would have changed how I moved forward, but it might have changed the things in the back of my mind. So like, as you said, when we kind of when we have gotten to a point and then we look at the statistics, it's like, okay, we're doing good. We're reading the odds. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And if I recall... When you were on the Opdivo, they said that Opdivo at that time was around 25% effective That's and right. that it seemed to be like working for you, like on steroids, like it was really, really effective for you. That's right. It was, um, I think it was 20 to 30% chance of having any response to okay. um, Opdivo and then you know, we've all seen the commercials, a chance to live longer. Um, I was aiming for a, a little more than that, and <laughs> hoping for a little more than that. <laughs> I was actually aiming for my son's um, first communion. Yes. He was in second grade. And uh, it was really, it didn't look like I was going to make it. And, you know, now he's 13. And I'm like, well, maybe I can make it to his confirmation. <laughs> you know, this is it, the goals moving further and further, which is actually really great. Yes. And so important, like it's so important to have those things as well. I have a great aunt who was, I think, one of the longest residents at the long-term care facility that she was at. Hospice must have come in for to be with her no less than a dozen times. My mom would say, oh, we went up to visit Auntie Kate because they brought hospice in and she'd be telling me about the story. And I was like, okay, so she was good when you left, right? Like what, what does she have on her plan? And it was like, there was a new grandbaby coming or there was a wedding she wanted to go to or like, and I said, as long as she has these things, like she's good. <laughs> yeah. That's, I think it's really important. We used to, um, 
you know, plan a trip, whether it was just a small trip, like yes. going to Maine for a week or, you know, um, a big trip, like when we went to Italy and Bosnia and Herzegovina. So we, it would always be good to have something that we're looking forward to. And then uh, we made a huge plan that was even outside my comfort zone. It was like a year and a half in advance. We made a plan to go to Israel for two weeks on a tour of the Holy Land of, and, you know, in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv, all kinds of um, follow the steps of Jesus was really the plan. And um, that was way you know, beyond anything I planned. I I was working in two week increments or maybe if I was lucky two months, but to plan something a year and a half out, of course, that was supposed to be last July, unfortunately. Oh, no. So, you know, that's been put off till July, 2022. So that was a, a heck of a planning ahead as well, but that's still out there. And it's nice to have that to look forward to, or even, you know, smaller things like, I'm looking forward to summer or going away for a week or taking a drive to New Hampshire to see the foliage or something like that. Just anything to keep you looking ahead and not sort of worrying about what's going on right now. Yes. And I I so have appreciated that about you as well. All the travel that you did. And we talk about that a lot in the episode that we recorded a couple of years ago, kind of where all the travel kind of fell out in terms of all the treatment that you were going through. And one of the other things that really stood out for me from that was when you were kind of in the most challenging period, I think it was even before they the Opdivo or maybe in the early days of Opdivo, you had asked for PT. And you had been doing some PT and because you were like, well, I need to I need to be as strong as I can be. So I'm going to go do some PT. And that was really inspirational to me. That was, um, at the time I was like, okay, you know, I went from having lung surgery, which is pretty major to have yeah. a lobe of your lung removed. And six weeks later, I started concurrent chemotherapy, high dose chemotherapy and radiation therapy. And I um, was developing some pain and I thought, this has got to be after the surgery and I need to do something to exercise, you know, stretch, do something for my muscles. And so that's, I pushed for PT um, because, you know, my doctors sort of suspected it was progression of eventually progression of um, the cancer and that pain meds would be appropriate. But I pushed that off for a while because I thought, well, how do we know? How do we know that? How do we know it's not just, you know, I did nothing after surgery to build back up strength and endurance. Why not give it a shot? And I did well, actually. You know, I think they expected me to do a lot worse, but I was pretty stubborn, honestly. I was going to at least try that before sort of zoning out a little bit on medication. Well, and that's a big that's a big kind of gap, I feel like, as well, because movement can be so beneficial to us. And I had a client who had ovarian cancer, and she'd been a client for years prior to the ovarian cancer. And then she was very like, I could not keep her out of the studio. And it, she lived close by, so she didn't have to drive. But I could not keep her out of the studio, like her two days a week, she was like, I'm going to be there. And we moved when we could move and we did restorative work when we needed to do restorative work. And actually that restorative work enabled her to sleep. So she would go home and be able to sleep and actually get restorative sleep because anxiety and the meds that she was on were causing more anxiety. And a nurse, she happened to be in the same oncology office that I went to. And when we went in for our tour before I started my infusions, I said, oh, I've actually been in there, but my husband can look in. And she said, oh, you've been in here. And I said, yeah, I brought, I brought a a friend before. And when I said who she asked who, and when I said her name, she got, you know, very sad and was like, 
oh yeah, because she had passed from her ovarian cancer. And I said, she were, and then my oncologist came in and said that I was a Pilates and yoga teacher. And I said, and by the way, that, that patient that we were just talking about, I saw her up until a week before she passed. Like she kept coming. She was doing everything that she could do. And it helped her. It helped her mood. It helped her like sleep. She was able to move her body. It was giving her some sense of control. Like, and there's so many like long-term things that we face as survivors that the research gives all this whole laundry list of potential treatments. And right at the bottom, it's like physical activity. I'm like, no, put that at the top. Like everyone can try some physical activity, like try something else. But that that's something that everyone can try to do and experiment with. I think it's therapeutic. I mean, I'll, before any of this happened, I live, you know, right near the beach, actually. So before we had our son, my husband and I would get up early and go for walks on the beach before work. And it was such a um, positive thing because, you know, we might spend the time, more me than him, complaining about work. But as you're moving, you're sort of sorting through and you're solving yeah. problems and coming up with ideas. And the same thing helped when I was going through um, the cancer, not during the treatments, because I wasn't wet. I really wasn't well enough to go through the long walks. But um, before, you know, before that, and then after that, just to go through and sort of deal with it, just moving forward, there's a, such a momentum and a rhythm to it that it helps you think clearly. It's good for your body. It's good. I think it's good for your soul. I agree. I do so much of my problem solving, like out on the trail or walking my dogs or going for a run, like just stepping out of kind of our everyday day to day. It lets us see the world in different ways. And sometimes I can be sitting at my computer just staring at a screen and I'm like, no, I have to go outside. (laughs) I have to go do something else. Like I'm not productive right now. (laughs) <laughs> and that break just can make a huge difference. My actually, my uh, podcast producer Brett said that he's a a foot thinker as well. Like he he thinks better when he's walking around on his feet. <laughs> mm-hmm. So catch us up to what what has transpired over the last two years. It's, it's never quiet. I'm like, right now I'm at a little <laughs> quiet point and I'm like, okay, what's next? What's coming? Um, and not in a negative way. You know, it's, it's, everything's, you know, we've done well so far. So why not keep thinking we're going to be doing well? But um, what happened not long after I talked to you in March of 2019, I started really I I'd developed over time after radiation therapy, some issues with my aortic valve. And yeah. I went from, and they think it's, you know, that it's certainly caused by that because there's a lot of heart issues that can happen when you've had your heart directly radiated. And it went from being sort of a, a slowly progressing issue to suddenly being um, severe. I had this severe aortic stenosis. I was, I was fortunate enough not to have symptoms, you know, like I could still, you know, go walk on the treadmill at Planet Fitness at three and a half miles an hour for half an hour to at a decent incline. And I wasn't getting dizzy and I wasn't having any fainting or anything, but, um, the, and I did fine on a stress test, but it was very clear on, um, an echocardiogram that I was having some issues. So I had to think about when to have it surgically addressed. And because of my age, um, not being elderly, the, the most likely surgery I would have would be an actual physical replacement of the valve going through the sternum, which is a pretty decent surgery to have to recover from. But a few months before I uh, had this, the procedure, the FDA sort of loosened some of the, the 
well, it isn't really lucid. It just opened up the possibility of having a really non-invasive procedure. And that's what I ended up having, a transcatheter aortic valve replacement, where it's not surgical. They actually go through your blood vessels and replace the valve. And you wake up and you can pretty shortly thereafter get out of bed and order a sandwich. You know, it was a pretty <laughs> straightforward thing. Um, and that happened in New Year's Eve in 2019. And right after that, I started, um, you know, when I was ready, I started cardiac rehab, which was awesome because you could go there and they would monitor you while you're on the treadmill and doing the exercises. And so you'd actually be confident that when you're done that program, they have data that says you're okay. And so you can go to Planet Fitness or wherever you like to go and not worry about keeling over and having people you know, not really know what to do about you because they don't have your history. Right. Um, so I was really excited about that. And I would go a couple of days a week. And, um, you know, I even signed up for some of their classes on how to relax. And I was actually thinking more about my son, teaching him some deep breathing techniques if he gets stressed about stuff. But And then they talked about nutrition. It was really a positive experience. Um, and it closed down, unfortunately, things closed down with COVID in March. Right. Um, which was a bummer, but they still kept in touch. And, you know, I still continued my program from home. They gave us videos to watch and ideas. And we had some app that we would, uh, it would keep track of, um, steps, what you were doing, your activity levels. So that was great. Um, and then in June of 2020, I was diagnosed with a new lung cancer, uh, which was kind of a scary time because at first I wasn't sure if it was a recurrence of the original lung cancer or a new one, but my doctors were pretty certain it was a new one. And this was an early stage. I guess it's not that uncommon if you've had one type of lung cancer that you might get a second one, especially, you know, in areas that I would imagine, you know, with the radiation that I had in 1984, I'm susceptible to all kinds of things. But I had a um, very short treatment, high dose radiation therapy, five zaps, and that was it. And I'm doing really well from that. And then the other thing that happened was that during that time, a scan showed that um, I had a meningioma, which is a a tumor in the meninges of your brain, the lining, the outside lining of your brain, um, that they had discovered serendipitously in 2014, the brain MRI, was really ready to come out. It had reached, it's a very slow growing, usually benign tumor that um, had reached the size that really needs to be taken out before you start having symptoms. And I was fortunate, fortunate not to have symptoms from that either. But I had a skull base surgery in October and things things went really well with that it was um it was found to be benign and it was um surgery went really really well I had um some funky things happen afterwards where I had some speech issues but um I went through speech therapy and everything's fine with that as well so it's been a busy um, two years as far as, you know, one health issue to the next. But in some ways, it feels like I'm marking things off a list because these are all things we knew. Right. In 2014, that at some point I might have to deal with them. And um, I'll be honest, I was amazed that someone who has had metastatic lung cancer is considered for some of these procedures. You know, like, I feel fortunate that I reached a point where I could have that taken care of. Yes. Um, I don't know. It's, but I'm doing the- well. And COVID hit and all of the middle of that. So it was a total, you know, I told my son I'm going to start writing down my story because um, someday he's going to want to know what the heck happened to me from <laughs> kindergarten until whenever. And I thought, well, I got the experience of, of major surgery and, and cancer treatment during COVID. So it's, it's another level of, of understanding. And I'm trying to like 
figure out where I should be going with this because I feel like helping other people deal with it is probably where I ought to be going. <laughs> so I definitely want to circle back on that experience of having the having the different treatments and diagnoses um, during COVID as well. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, we will be talking more about that. Stay with us. I hope you're enjoying Unspoken Cancer Truths. I help people to get moving again. And sometimes you just need to switch up the approach or find a new challenge, especially when thinking about starting back after treatment or an illness. One of my goals is to help you flip the idea of exercise as something that's hard, awful, or daunting, and make it something fun, maybe even a little social. Safely, of course. The important thing is that you want to get started, and you're happy to show up for yourself, and then you want to stay in the game because it feels good to move, and you had fun doing it. Ready to reimagine exercise? You can email me at jennifer at fitnessdesignsolutions.com or schedule a copy chat with me through the Facebook group, Surviving is Just the Beginning. Now back to the show. I'm back with Kelly Lennon, and we are talking about her 37-year journey with many different types of cancer. There's so many, so many things that you were saying earlier. And one of the things that I just want to start off by saying you were talking about helping others. And I know there have been times during, as you've been sharing pieces and parts of your story where you're like, do people still want me to be sharing this? I don't know. I don't know if y'all still want me to be sharing and like you'll share a Facebook post update or something. And, and overwhelmingly, the response is always yes, yes please share. Like we want to know, please share. And I remember when we were first talking about um, doing our original, our original episode, you were like, I don't know, it's my story. And I was like, it's so hopeful and inspirational. And you were like, I go back and forth between hopeful and inspirational and terrifying. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's a little, it's a little crazy. I, at first, I really didn't enjoy sharing my story at all because I felt like I'm kind of, kind of a private person, believe yes. it or not. Um, but, and I don't want people to think, you know, feel sad for me because I don't feel sad. You know, this is just, I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to be here. The fact that the first cancer was cured. And even if I'm having secondary effects, I'm still here. You know, yes. I've still been, I've been able to do a lot of things I wouldn't have been able to do if the first treatment wasn't successful. So I can't blame the first treatment for all the rest of this. But, and I always, when I give updates, I'm always like, oh gosh, these guys probably are like, where's, why is she telling this story again? Um, but I feel like I want to say I'm still here, you know, like I'm still, you can do all these things and have all these crazy things happen in your life and you can, you know just not give up, just keep going. It's possible to go through these crazy experiences and still keep going. And I've had people tell me I'm strong. I don't particularly feel like I'm strong. I think I'm stubborn. (laughs) It's more like (laughs) it. I'm not giving up. And, you know, I have very strong faith. So I know I'm not doing this alone. Yes. Yes, indeed. It's, it's interesting too when we tell our story because it's our story, right? We know it. Yeah. We know it. And as we are telling pieces and parts, it's like, I've, I've told this before, but it's because it's our story. It feels like, Oh, does anyone want to hear this again? Yeah. But yeah. then we find out that people aren't hearing it again. Like they're hearing it for the first time or they're it's, creating some kind of recollection to something they may have thought they knew in the past. And it's, that's been really interesting as well. Like I get feedback from so many people that are like, Oh, that episode really helped me or made me feel seen in my journey. And, and it's because there's so many people that 
aren't talking about their stories. And as we share our stories, it can really be so helpful for others. And as every time that we talk, I always just feel like your energy. And we always have such great, amazing chats and conversations. So yeah, I kind of look at all the other things as like just things, facts that have happened. (laughs) A kind of crazy set of facts that have happened. Yeah. And yeah, definitely crazy. But there's always some good things that come out of bad experiences. I'll always think that. I never thought of myself as particularly optimistic, but I'm finding through this that I actually am, which is a nice, a nice thing, actually a nice, a nice thing to realize about yourself. Um, And I also like, I can think back with my first diagnosis, um, my doctors put me in touch with someone who had gone through it before. And I remember thinking, you know, 17, I was a bit self-absorbed and didn't think someone else's experience could help me. But I still go back to that conversation. And I think of how helpful it was to hear that someone else was in a similar boat and um how they dealt with it and and what kind of things came up um and i feel like sharing and listening to each other's stories helps in general yes you know with anything whether it's you know a cancer or anything to find out how other people have dealt with it because you can do your google searches um and you're only going to find negative stuff nobody goes back and reports the good stuff they're not going to say, well, I went through it and it was fine. Because first of all, a lot of people, like I'd be self-conscious doing that in some ways because I feel there's a little survivor guilt that happens. For you sure. want to kind of be quiet and just face forward and keep going with your life. But if you can just, you know, tell a story that someone can relate to and sort of gives them an idea of what they're facing and, you know, how it's doable if you break it down into little steps. Um, yeah. Absolutely. And it's so, so, so true what you say about like, people, when you Google, you see the bad things. And even, even like, I had a client who's a breast cancer survivor, and she came in one day and she said, I am so glad I did not have a mastectomy. And I was like, okay, that's cool. Why? (laughs) And she said, because I've been going to this support group, and everyone in there hates their mastectomies. And I was like, huh, well, that's the surgery I had. And I, I'm actually totally cool with mine. And and there have been so many people who were like grappling with that choice. And everything yeah. that they see is people who don't, you know, who were struggling with it. And I was like, yeah, there, I really don't talk about how unbothered I was by it. <laughs> Like it was surgery. And certainly I had like the things associated to that. But the end result does not like I'm happy with the end result. And that's when we're happy about something. It's not necessarily the thing that gets talked about. (laughs) Right. Yeah. It's easier to talk about things that you're not happy about truthfully. Yeah. Um, And you might and I wonder, you know, hearing that, I wonder if each of those people was just at a stage. Like if you talk to them now, would they still say that or would they have come to a different conclusion? And if you're just looking at a snippet of time, that's probably going to, it's not that accurate. I would think that you would kind of want to see how the story progresses. Yeah. You rip a page out of a book. You read that. That's not the whole story. No clue what the whole, how it ends. Right. Or what came before. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So with your aortic valve, that replacement kind of came, you were five years out. I remember when you hit the five-year palate cancer point and then the five years from having been diagnosed with the lung cancer and having the five years for the palate cancer really opened up things in terms of your future options for treatment. Um. Which I think is exciting. It was because um, I believe that having had the palate cancer so close to the lung cancer, 
um, affected my eligibility for clinical trials. So when I reached the five-year mark there, I was like, okay, well now if it, you know, if I have a recurrence, I have different options than I would have. I haven't asked whether the latest lung cancer kind of blows that and my timer starts again. So I have to go five years. We'll see how that goes. But it does, it does affect things. And maybe that played into how I was eligible for um, the valve replacement. I didn't get, I didn't think to ask that. It would have been a good question. And having, fortunately, the valve replacement happened prior to COVID, um, so close to COVID. So close, yeah. And I actually took an earlier appointment because nobody, um, I was scheduled for the end of January and New Year's Eve opened up and we kind of joked about it that that would be a funny way to celebrate New Year's Eve. But um, I was like, let's just do this and get it done, have recovery over Christmas vacation. And, you know, I'm glad I did because that's, I mean, I feel great. Yeah, that's fantastic. And then because you were being, I mean, your surveillance is, is pretty consistent. You get regular scans and which is how they found the, the secondary lung cancer. So did you feel like, did you have delays in your scans like because of COVID or that's been a real challenge um, in terms of cancer diagnoses in general? I think for people who weren't under surveillance already, um, for those of us who were already being followed, I think we were able to kind of keep our, our you know, quote unquote, normal schedule. My schedule for um, any of the follow up for cancer stayed pretty much on track. I think maybe a month it was shifted by a month and that my doctor felt comfortable with that because I'd been stable for so long. Um, my, my actual appointments shifted to being uh, virtual, yeah, which was interesting. That was an interesting thing. And I'm glad about it because then my husband could sit next to me and we could listen to, you know, the test results together, which I'd gotten so used to. He went with me to every appointment, every scan. I mean, and he doesn't like being left out of it because he likes to, you know, hear directly what's going on. But, you know, other other types of appointments did get pushed off. Like, you know, I get a little annoyed and you see, I don't know if you've noticed it, this, but if you're on Facebook now, there are lots of... um posts by medical centers that are saying, don't forget to get your screening kind of thing. Right. And I get a little annoyed because it's like, I didn't forget the center postponed my mammogram. I didn't postpone my mammogram. So. Right. And it was me calling them and calling them to get it back on the books that, that got it to happen, not them calling me. So a lot of things got pushed off, you know, just the regular kinds of appointments, but not the cancer related ones. And I was shocked that they would schedule the brain surgery during the middle of it, and also um, the radiation therapy for the lung cancer, the second lung cancer. Well, and the radiation therapy, that definitely was fortunate that you were able to to continue with that. Um, and you go to Mass General. And I think that they, in a lot of ways, have been, I mean, obviously, with all the precautions and and all the covid related considerations but i think they have really tried to stay the course yeah for treatment for patients i um my cousin's husband was recently diagnosed and is being treated at mass general and once they got in there once they got him moved to mass general things happened very much in know what we would consider quote unquote normal times <laughs> no it's and honestly I felt very safe you know I was nervous the first time I went into um, any of the medical facilities after the close down because it's like how how are they going to keep us all safe but they I, Mass General was just awesome going yeah. in there and you know seeing how they set up the line and how they were dealing with the patients coming in and the ones that hadn't been there before and didn't know where to go. They had, 
they had policies and practices in place that made me feel really comfortable with the situation. It was very, this, you know, the, the strange part was going in by myself. Yeah. You know, I gotten so used to having Liam's been to all kinds of treatments that I've had over the years, plus my husband. And it was funny because I was more in my own head than I would normally be, you know, sitting in the waiting room. I'm used to Liam sitting next to me on the iPad joking about stuff and, you know, Chris going to get me a coffee or something. I've been spoiled. And then I'm sitting there and it's like quiet. And I'm like, what do I do with myself during this time? Well, look around and see how comfortable it is. And it was great. And, you know, I had to go for a couple of, I had to go for COVID tests before every procedure. Right. Um, which was wild as well. Cause I was at, um, the mass general COVID testing facility up in Chelsea. And it was also very tightly run and careful. And it was okay to sort of let go and do this stuff. Um, and I've been to a couple of places that I have since then that I haven't been as comfortable, but yeah. I'm not going to point any fingers. It's just that mass general stood out. It was pretty awesome. Yeah, I I will not lie. I was in my doctor's office last summer. I had um, what I thought was potentially a tick bite. I wanted to have it checked out. And I mean, this was July. It was the height of COVID. And I was like, I walked in and I'm like, okay, I didn't have to call from the parking lot. Why yeah. am I in the minority of wearing a mask? Like, yeah. I had to take my mask down so they could take my temperature. They weren't using like the scanner temperatures. They weren't using the forehead temperature. Like they were sticking a thermometer in my mouth. And I was like, I am so not comfortable right now. And this is supposed to be a practice that specializes in people with autoimmune conditions. Like I'm terrified. Most of the office staff was not wearing masks. There was no social distancing in the waiting room. Like then I went to my dentist. And it was like, everything was sealed. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Same I with my dentist. so comfortable. Yep. Like, so, so comfortable. I was like, and then I had clients say, my dentist appointment's coming up. I'm like, call your dentist. Ask what they're doing. If yep. they tell you that if you've had a sniffle in the last 24 hours, they don't want to see you, you are fine to go to the dentist. Like... Yep. Yeah, it, it's there is a wide uh, variation in how careful it it seems. You know, maybe there's stuff going on behind the scenes, but that makes some of the places that don't feel particularly safe actually safer than we think. But there's I've seen a wide variety of of how this is being handled. When someone wants to hand me something and wants me to hand it back, I'm not really happy about that. <laughs> Like, no, I'm not giving you my credit card. We're going to have to. You're going to have to bill me. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's it's crazy. Um, but you have to stay on it because it's, you know, it's your life. If you're, you have to live with consequences. So you have to be careful. I call all of my appointments ahead of time and say, you know, what is in place? What is it I need to do? How are you going to, you know, I know you're going to wipe things down between appointments, but how are you going to keep me safe from my fellow patients and keep them safe for me? Right. And, you know, I'd like to have an answer. I don't don't like to hear, um, on the other (laughs) end of the phone. (laughs) It's so true. It is. It is so, so true. So I'm going to actually change gears a little bit because one of the things that you mentioned was being eligible for clinical trials. And you and I recently um, were talking about uh, clinical trials um, over, over message and clinical trials. I'm, I'm constantly um, in the breast cancer world. There's an organization called army of women and people who have been diagnosed haven't been diagnosed, um, our relatives of people who have been diagnosed, they have, it's kind of a clearinghouse for breast cancer research. So researchers will, and clinicians will contact them with their surveys and things. So I've done so many like surveys and participated in different research that's going on. And I'm 
always on the lookout for clinical trials and even especially in the land of survivorship, because that is an area that I just feels like we were talking about this before, uh, before we started the episode. It just feels like there's things we should know that we seem to not know. Yeah. It's, um, I feel like I I was fortunate to be in graduate school when, um, I reached the 10 year point for, um, after my first cancer and had to sort of shift the thinking to, you know, what to be looking for now that that seems to be behind me. And I would do, I was, I'm a scientist. So I would do a lot of searches for information to try to find out what is it you look for? Because I felt like it was kind of incomplete. You know, the conversation with my oncologist is incomplete because they didn't have studies. You know, it wasn't, yeah. um, if you probably, if you talk to doctors, they'll tell you what they've seen, but, a lot of it wasn't published at the time. And I remember, you know, starting to see vague connections between, I had what was called mantle radiation. So it was the chest um, and the up to the lower jaw. And they were seeing a lot of heart regulation issues. And that got stronger over the years because I would do like searches on PubMed and come up with you know, scientific medical papers that were mentioning links and then eventually studies being done. And then we started seeing, you know, just a random thing. I got a, a mammogram and at the bottom of my mammogram report that I got in the mail, it said, if you had mantle radiation, you should consider having um, breast MRIs. So I marched into my primary care physician and I said, hey, that's me. So you know, that got to the point where it was like mammogram once a year, breast MRI once a year and all staggered by six months. So you're covered right. twice a year, but it's, you know, the patient has to, the survivor has to sort of keep an eye out on that kind of thing popping up and making sure that you're covered. Like I didn't know part of the process when I had Hodgkin's was um, part of the staging process back then was to remove your spleen and the spleen is a really important part of your immune system. Um, and if you've had a splenectomy, you have a higher incidence of certain types of bacterial infection. Um, and at the time I had a shot for against pneumonia bacteria, but then it turns out over time, they've found that you need a few more shots and you need to have repeat shots because your immune system sort of forgets. Right. So it was sort of paying attention to that and seeing it in the literature and going in with, I used to be famous for showing up with a stack of papers and saying, Hey, we got to pay attention to this. Or I think my thyroid's dying and I bet it's the radiation therapy or, you know, and staying on top of it. As we get more survivors, there's going to have to be more, you know, automation in that process because you can't, like I lucked out. I was doing searches anyway for my research so I would throw on a few more of my own for my personal stuff but not everyone even thinks to do that and you know it's it's something that has to be um thought about well and it's access too right like you cited PubMed like you were looking at scientific articles because I always tell people like the source and the funding matters. Yeah. Like who's doing the study and who's paying for the study? Yeah. <laughs> if we have a pretty good handle on that, then then we can see cuz bias is exists. I mean, we all have we all have bias. And if we're doing a study, it's because we have a hypothesis which could also have you know, a little bit of bias. (laughs) Yeah. It can be based on the science, but it could be based on the science and someone looking at the science in a specific way. Right. And ignoring things that don't fit. Right. (laughs) Instead of doing like a, a literature review where you look at all of it and see, you know, yeah. And that you have to learn how to do that. Like you don't, you may be inserting it's, you know, adding bias to the situation without even knowing. Yes. Like, you know, all the stuff you read online about 
COVID and vaccines and all that, you have to be very careful. What For you, sure. What you consider a credible source. Yeah, I was reading uh, as a lymphedema therapist, I was reading a literature review on lymphedema research. And it was somewhat terrifying because, and I think this is what's happening with a lot of the things about cancer that we don't yet formally know. There were, it was something like 257 papers reviewed. 24 were included in the literature review. The rest did were either anecdotal or did not follow a recognized pattern of research. And this is what's wrong with in the lymphedema world, right? Like there's not enough doctors operate off the science and a little bit of their bias. It has been a long standing debate of sorts. That if a surgeon is really good at their job, their patient won't have lymphedema. But I had nine lymph nodes taken out, which means mechanically something got removed. So I have a higher risk of lymphedema. Like your skill as a surgeon really doesn't, it matters, right? But I'm a terrible scarer. My body produces scar tissue. Like, there's there's a gap but until we can say i mean i've had multiple people say well only five percent of breast cancer survivors um get lymphedema and i'm like everything i see says 21 to 50 percent like it's such a wide gap because the research isn't being consistently done it's Mm -hmm. small cohorts of people or anecdotally reported. Yeah. And we don't consistently send people for screenings. And that's across all cancers that affect, I mean, radiation has a huge effect on our lymphatic system. So, but when I looked at that research, I was like, oh my goodness, we need, like, this is an area that desperately needs skilled researchers Mm -hmm. so that there's real data. And you and I had both um, participated in some some early stage studies where we were talking about the use of apps um, in tracking our our health. And one of the things that I had chatted with the researcher about was the and you referred to this a little bit in your cardiac rehab um, with having being able to track like your activity and and all of your things related to that. And um, I think it would be amazing if we could have some standardization around like reporting side effects. Yeah. And because we have a lot of like, as patients, we, we report a side effect and, and if the response is that's normal or that's weird, that's weird. That was a big one that I heard a lot. Like when we hear that's weird, it's like, am I the only person in the whole world that's having this side effect? Like that can't be true. (laughs) It just can't be true. But when it's weird, I feel like it doesn't get, there's not a formal way to document it. Right. So it's uh, something that someone says is weird, doesn't get documented. So you don't know if it's actually not really weird. Right. You know, like maybe it comes up a lot. It's just that you haven't seen it before or. Well, the heart, you know, with my heart procedure right after the um, procedure, when they sent me home, I was on a heart monitor for two weeks and um, that was great, except it wasn't and it wasn't reporting to my doctor in any real time. It was at the end of the two weeks he would get sent a report. Which is, that wasn't, that didn't make me very happy, honestly. Right. Like, I thought I was actually, you know, it's not that I want someone on call for me paying attention to some random amount of data that's being sent, but it, it would be nice if I had 
if I had believed that was the case. Um, but <laughs> one of the things that I got to do was um, I could feel I could feel heart palpitations, yeah. and I think it's the case that if I understand it, I'm not a cardiologist, but um, you don't always feel heart palpitations. And sometimes when you think you feel heart palpitations, that's really not happening. So one thing that happened to me over the course of that two weeks is I, the um, monitor was linked to some app on my phone and I could annotate. I could say, right now, I feel like I'm having a heart palpitation. And then, you know, once that all that data got sent to my doctor, he was able to say, you know what, every time you said you were, you were. So now I know that I can trust that I, and I, and anytime I said I wasn't or felt like I wasn't, I wasn't. So I, I am able to, to accurately tell when I'm having heart palpitation. So now, you know, that just having that correlation right there um, makes me more confident when I talk to my cardiologist and say, you know, I haven't felt anything in three months or, you know, I've noticed that if I have a, uh, you know, a, a latte that's not half decaf, I feel heart palpitations. So, and I know it's real. So, you know, when you're talking about apps that help survivors keep track of what's going on, just to have data being collected that might be correlated and might actually show some truths about what's happening to people would be great. It's got to be a ton of information that you can capture and who, you know, who's going to go through that maybe a data scientist, I don't know. But right. it feels like with with a survivor, with cancer survivors, if you could somehow tell stories from that that will guide other survivors to know what to look for, that will be very helpful. And I think that you made a great point too, like in being able to annotate how you were feeling and then have that validated against the data it not only gives you the confidence to say, okay, I'm really feeling the thing I think I'm feeling, but it also gives your doctor that confidence to know like every time she's feeling something, it's really happening. And I think sometimes that is tricky. Yeah. Like as patients, we don't report the things that we think we feel because what if they're not real like what what if I imagined that um so it it's it's really a win-win because it gives the patient or the person being monitored that confidence and then it gives the medical team also the confidence to be like hey she really knows her body and she really is good. We have we have data <laughs> that shows that she's really good at like understanding what's happening with her body. So when weird and and not kind of standard things come up, it gives everyone that little bit of like, well, wait a minute. We know that she's good at reading her body. We have data. This is this is an odd data point. Maybe we need to dig a little further where I feel like right now, if we fall into that 80% of everything, you're following a normal pattern for something, that all gets validated. But then yeah. if you're in that 20% that's not following the pattern, it it can just get lost. Mm-hmm. And then it can make us doubt as patients like, oh, well, maybe maybe that's not a significant thing. And we might not share something that really is a significant thing when when it could could really help us. So that yeah, advocacy. No one, likes to, no one likes to nag their doctor or to have to like say, no, I really mean this. This is really, you know, because you're not, they're the expert. Right. right. But I don't know. It's um, It's hard. It's hard. Well, like I had it happened to me once that my my pulse was high. My resting pulse was high, and it wouldn't be the doctor didn't see, my primary care didn't seem to be worried about it. But anytime I would get sick, I usually end up getting hospitalized if I get pneumonia because I don't have a spleen and have to make sure it's not like um, a strep pneumonia that's going to be a problem. But when that would happen, I would have a really high 
resting pulse would be like 150. Um, and then I would end up on cardiac monitors and then, you know, people would be nervous about what's, what's going on. So I pushed really hard at some point to get my pulse addressed. And, um, I really didn't feel like I should have to push really hard because every time I was in the doctor's office, it was 120. When I was at home, I'd measure it be 100, 110. That's not normal. No. Thick, it would go through the roof. Um, so it took a long time before I could convince my doctor to sort of, you know, send me a cardiologist to get it checked out and rule out some things and figure out what it was. And um, eventually I was put on meds to lower my pulse, but it took, it takes a lot. And yeah. um, it takes going in with your stack of data. It's like, Hey, look, I did resting heart rate for three months and it's always above a hundred. So maybe we can pay attention to this now. But if it was reported without you doing it, then you can't, they don't have to worry about you. Did you make a, a spreadsheet and fudge the data just so you could get attention on this? And it's like, no, I'd rather not have any attention on this at all, right. but I'd like it resolved. So if it went directly to you, if you had an app or blood pressure, that was another thing. My, I have um, white coat syndrome. I always have higher blood pressure at the doctor's office than I do at home. But if my, blood pressure monitor would send it somewhere instead of having me write it down and go in with my little notebook of, you know, I'm not hypertensive. I have, I'm nervous when I come see you. Right. I get so far. Right. Yeah. But, when I went gluten free, my, my blood pressure came down. So I didn't have super white coat syndrome when I was in, but it was like on the high end of normal. And now it's like right in the the, the kind of new normal of one, like one ten over seventy. Um, so that that's pretty low for people who are in the doctor's office because yeah, we always is. account for white coat syndrome. I had been given a diuretic when I had all the fluid on my body. That was the solution to the fluid. Um, was not taking me off the drug that was causing the fluid, but giving me another drug. Um, so I had taken the diuretic before I went for an echo and I had like walked the dogs and had taken this medication and I had run over to the hospital, like driven over to the hospital. And then I walked in from the garage and I walked up the stairs to go to my appointment. And I barely sat down in the chair before the tech came to take me back. And <laughs> he's checking my blood pressure and he says, this is a, this particular tech is very interesting. He says, "Oh, uh, high blood pressure is not a problem." And I said, "Oh, <laughs> what was it?" And it was like ninety six over fifty two, and I was like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> like you need to take it again. And he was like. Is that not normal for you? I'm like, that's not normal for anybody. <laughs> like, that is so low. I literally just hiked in from the garage. Like, I hadn't even sat down. <laughs> like, this is not okay. And so he takes it again. And he was so, like, understated and like, oh, well, high blood pressure is not a problem for you. Like, I'm like, am I alive right now? Like, <laughs> So he took it again and I was like, okay, this is why my cardiologist does not want me taking these diuretics. Like I had been on them for like four days and I was like, okay, I'm done with that. Like there's another solution to this problem because this isn't it. Like I've been, <laughs> I like, I should have a blood pressure right now. Like I should have been borderline high, not, not like right, under the, the chart low. <laughs> It was crazy, but I didn't feel like my blood pressure was that low. So then I was like, this is. I bet it made you think twice uh, getting out of bed, you know, because <laughs> you don't want to get dizzy and fall over, you know. Right. Yeah. I mean, when your blood pressure gets gets low like that, like dizziness and fainting is a reality. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> was like, oh my goodness, this is crazy. So crazy. 
So yeah, like being able to have like certain stats and information that we can just provide and have have looked at is there's so many so many potential potential opportunities there. Well, yeah. I know that you and I could talk all day. Mm-hmm. All day. <laughs> so we definitely are going to have to do this again sooner than 2 years cuz there's so many topics too that we can talk about that that are really beneficial to people and definitely like self-advocacy is huge. And it's an area that I think that we sometimes hold ourselves back from because the the doctors are the expert and we want them to have the information. And sometimes when we have to push, it can, it feels like maybe I shouldn't. Yeah. Right. Am I I a hypochondriac? I could totally be, but not be a surprise. (laughs) Right. For sure. (laughs) Um, and, and I do have a story about like, am I a hypochondriac? Like that's something I realized that I wondered about myself that was always in the back of my mind. So it prevented me from, from sometimes getting checked out when I knew that there was something wrong. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, right. You have to reach a certain level where you're like, this has happened enough times that I'm going to mention this. And then I don't know if you do this, but I always make a list when I'm going in. And there's some things that I don't cover because by the end of the conversation, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to wait till next time to bring this up. She's going to think I'm crazy. (laughs) Right. For sure. Like our list is so long because we're like reading and thinking and yeah. Yeah. So thank you so, so much for your, for your time, for sharing your story. It's, it's always so beneficial. So I am on a mission to interview new guests every week to bring more connection and share more stories for cancer survivors, caregivers, and support organizations. And whether you think you may want to share your story on the podcast, or if you just want to share with me directly, you can connect with me in my Facebook group, Surviving is Just the Beginning, and you can connect with Kelly there as well, um, as well as past guests and other group members. Or look for the coffee chat link in the show description wherever you listen to your podcasts. Knowing that there are others with similar experiences helps us know that we're not alone. And there's a community of people with similar and diverse experiences that are waiting to meet you. Because surviving really is just the beginning. Thanks for listening and have a great week.